How's the sound? Good? Okay. So tonight, some reflections on compassion. Uh, there's nothing to do with any of it other than to just uh, take it in as you can, um, coming back to the heart and the body and allowing the rest to just go by the wayside. So over the years, I've um, worked with kids and youth and teens and did so for almost 25, 26 years. And I always made it a point um, a few years into working with, with um, kids, I began to practice in, with some regularity and earnest. And since then, I'd always made it a point and a priority to teach compassion and empathy formally and informally as often as I could, really defining for the kids that I worked with, really, uh, compassion as being uh, a sensitivity to the situation of others, um, empathy, putting yourself in another's shoes. and really feeling and embodying the experience of, of compassion or empathy, and then hopefully learning where that was felt and how that was felt, and from there finding how one could help in the world, help themselves and help others in the world. And I also uh, supported the children in understanding that sometimes it just hurts. And that sometimes all we can do is to bear witness. So several years ago, I had an opportunity to lead a school program. And these, this particular group of children, they were five to eight years old. And a couple of weeks into some lessons on compassion and empathy, gratitude, and really an all in an effort to mitigate constant bickering and fighting over toys and space and hurt feelings and lost games and on and on and on. So at the beginning or the end of the first week of the experiment, I had the kids write and talk about their understanding and their experience of compassion and empathy. And I gave extra playtime and recess and treats to ensure that it was taken seriously. And during the second week, I noticed very little of the usual fighting and fussing that was happening and I had also asked folks to let me know if compassion or gratitude was ever felt um, or if it ever seemed to came, come up during the day. And a few kids would run up to me remembering and to tell me that uh, some kid didn't have good food, didn't have good lunch, was missing a snack, had lost in a game. A parent had came, come to pick them up late. And one of my favorites was a little, little one who was really excited to run up and tell me that he felt that they felt deeply for a classmate because this classmate 
had three moms and how this was a whole lot of people to be the boss of you. (laughs) (laughs) And they continued on and dumbfounded and, and confused as they said that, well, one of the moms is named Jenna and the other are called the exes. <laughs> and, and being at the end of a long school day, I simply smiled and nodded and thanked the child and just went on with my business. <laughs> so this first noble truth of suffering, the truth acknowledges that suffering is an intrinsic part of life. Whether we are healthy, wealthy, powerful, we will experience suffering in some form or another. And maybe it's physical pain, emotional turmoil, some existential angst, such as it is in this life, on this wheel of samsara. And that knowing really sets our hearts quivering. Compassion being the trembling of the heart in response to suffering. The heart's connection to all beings and the understanding of dukkha. So the late Maya Angelou wrote or spoke about the power of love and compassion to liberate the human spirit. And here she's uh, speaking of how her mother's love had liberated her and how her own fierce compassion allowed her to love and let go of her mother at the end of her mother's life. So she says, she liberated me. She liberated me into the fullness of life. Near death with cancer, I went to San Francisco to see her as her doctor said she only had a few weeks to live. I asked her if she would come to North Carolina with me to live. And she lived for another year and a half. And finally, at the point of death, I remembered her liberating me. I had always said that I hoped I would be able to liberate her. She deserved that from me. She deserved a great daughter, and well, she got one. In her last days, I said, I understand some people need permission to go, and as I understand it, you have done what God put you here to do. You were a great worker. You must have been a great lover, because a lot of men, and if I'm not wrong, a couple of women risked their lives to love you. You were a piss-poor mother of small children, but you were a great mother of young adults. And if you need permission to go, I liberate you. And as I drove back to my house from the hospital, something told me to turn around and go back. And I did, and the, the nurse at that point said, she's gone, she's just, she's gone. You see, love and compassion liberate. It doesn't bind Love says, I love you. I love you if you're in China. I love you if you're across town. I love you if you're in Harlem. I love you. I would like to be near you. I would like to have your arms around me. I would like to have your voice in my ear. And that's not possible now. I love you, so go. Love liberates. It doesn't hold. That's ego. Love liberates. Through this practice, through the continuity of practice on retreat, actually sensing and feeling and holding ourselves and others, 
deeply in our hearts and letting go is fierce compassion. It's love in action. Compassion meets suffering and supports us in connecting with ourselves and connecting with others and helps to cut through that small sense of self. It fosters some emotional intelligence. This wish for all beings to be free of suffering. This awareness imbued with compassion brings about great wisdom. There's a story that I've particularly enjoyed over the years. It's a story from a book called The Heart's Code. And it's a book by a, a neuropsychologist named Paul Pearsall. And the premise of the book is that the heart has the capacity to both know and remember in a way that's distinct from and as powerful as the brain. And the story illustrates how the hearts of some heart transplant recipients seemed to hold the memories that were from the person whose heart they received. I'm just giving time for the skeptical people to squirm with that right now. We'll hang right there. So don't get me wrong. I know that this transcends some of what science currently knows. And yet there's a profound beauty and power here to consider. So David and Glenda have an argument while driving. And it doesn't get resolved. And so they are sitting silently in this resentful energy. And later they get into a car accident and David dies. And his heart was donated and Glenda wanted to meet the recipient of David's heart. A meeting was arranged between Glenda and a young man whose life was saved by the gift of her husband's heart. And now before the meeting, Glenda, herself a doctor, said that she felt the presence of her husband tugging at her heart. And at that very moment, the door to the hospital chapel where they were all meeting opens and in walks this young man and his mother. And Glenda said, can I put my hand on your chest and hold his heart to hold your heart? And the young man nods yes and unbuttons his shirt and takes her hand and gently places it against his chest. She trembled and tears began to roll down her cheeks. And she closed her eyes and whispered, I love you, David. Everything is copacetic. She hugged the young man and they wiped tears from their eyes and they sat down away from the others in the room and had a conversation holding hands in silence. And the young man's mother, speaking in a heavy accent, told the doctors that, that her son uses this word, copacetic, all the time. I don't know what it means. He never used it before. He got his new heart. Everything is copacetic. It was the very first thing he said after the surgery. Glenda overhears this and her eyes widen. And she turned towards the mother and said, when David and I made up after an argument, that was our signal that everything was okay. And the young man, turns out, used to be a vegetarian and into heavy metal music 
and now he craves meat and fatty foods. He loves R&B and classic soul. And Glinda says matter-of-factly that her husband loved meat, played in a Motown cover band. And of course, we shouldn't, it shouldn't require a heart transplant to discover compassion. But as we dive further into the practice with continuity, our shared sense of humanity and a felt sense of each other naturally comes forward as compassion, leading to, or hopefully leading to widening our circles of compassion. Pema Trojan says, love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. Our prime purpose in this life is to help others. If you can't help them, at least don't hurt them. And one of our teachers, my mentor, Joseph Goldstein, says, at first, as we undertake the cultivation of compassion, we may feel genuine empathy with others in pain or difficulty. This happens when we take the time to stop and feel what is really going on, even just for a few moments before rushing and going on with our lives. And that had me actually thinking about um, a study at, that was done, a research study that was done at Princeton called the Good Samaritan Study. These uh, seminary students were given a practice sermon. And half of them were assigned this story of the Good Samaritan, and the other half were assigned this random story from the Bible. And the students were supposed to go to another building to give this sermon and then be evaluated on it. But on their way to the other building, they passed a person in a doorway who was moaning in great distress. So the real question of the study was actually whether the seminary students were going to stop to help. And the research overwhelmingly showed that it depended on how much time they thought they had before they had to give their sermon on the Good Samaritan. If the students believed that they would be late, they didn't stop even though the sermon they were about to preach was about being a good Samaritan. And this is quite revealing and powerful. Our usual not enough time to stop because of not being embodied, not unable to access the heart in a rush, distance, distant from these qualities of compassion and loving kindness that are the appropriate response. Hindered by the squeeze of conceptual time, the I mean mine to take care of this here gets in the way. And that all makes it next to impossible to act out of love, to express compassionate action or tender care or even concern at the least, the very least. This is um, a translation of the Acrobat Sutta, part of a translation of the Acrobat Sutta from Andy Olinsky. We should also practice the establishment of mindfulness by saying, I will look after others. Looking after oneself, one looks after others. 
looking after others, one looks after oneself. And how does one look after others by looking after oneself? By practicing mindfulness, by developing it. And how does one look after oneself by looking after others? By patience, by non-harming, by loving kindness and caring for others. Looking after oneself, one looks after others. And looking after others, one looks after oneself. And he goes on to say that ultimately we are responsible for our own balance and are not to neglect our own inner landscape. And yet others are directly affected by how well we do this. The practice is not a selfish undertaking. From Dr. Martin Luther King, the ultimate measure of a person is not where they stand in moments of comfort and convenience, but where they stand in times of challenge and controversy. We can sit and sit and sit. And compassion will naturally arise eventually. And yet fierce compassion is fully realized when taken off the cushion and put into action. Sometimes we can bear witness to something and find ourselves for a variety of reasons, unable to come into, to step into compassionate action. It's an example of this. Once on a Greyhound bus ride from a small town to a big city, a young person clearly in distress, showing exaggerated mannerisms, tears and shaking, And the whole situation made worse by a station agent at the bus station who had this look of disgust and was really speaking quite rudely. And the running commentary from the co-workers and other folks around who were also planning to get on this bus. And you could hear people say, what does it want? Where is it going? And all of these co-signing smirks and sly smiles and snickering from others in line. Really bonding and creating an other. And the young person was so distraught that they were dropping the money that they needed to pay for this ticket. And a man pushes forward after hearing all of this taking place and buys a ticket for them. And during the boarding process, the young person is headed to the back of the bus walks by muttering, I'm human. I'm effing human. I'm a person. I'm trans. Okay? Thanks for all your help while I was being bullied and walks towards the back. They soon walked back up after the bus was moving and said, thank you to the man who had helped them. And the man said, hey, there's room enough for all of us on this planet. I'm happy to help. It's the right thing to do. My name is Don. What's your name? And the young person said, my name's Taylor. Nice to share the planet with you. Yes, it is, said Don. I put myself in your shoes and here we are. People are so afraid. Man, they're just so afraid. A bunch of cowards. Taylor said, I'd happily put myself in your shoes but a girl's got fashion standards to uphold. 
And they both cracked up and belly laughed, loudly smiling, and went about the journey. And you might have figured out that as a narrator, I was on the bus, sitting quietly in deep guilt and shame and disappointment that though having a practice, I failed to be a resource, a light, a helper, and vowed to resource myself better in the future. Now, there was old traumas that kicked up that had me in a bit of a freeze. But I did vow to better resource myself, to locate my practice so that I could be available for myself and be available for others. And I know sometimes that we don't have access in that split second. And I've never forgotten the bus ride. I name it. I sit with it. It comes up. I identify the sensations, the numbness that I feel in this moment, the heat that I feel from the afterlife of shame and guilt. But they're clearly identified and they're known. What is your heart right now? There's nothing outside of the practice. There's nothing outside of this practice. I did become better educated in order to be resourced and to continue to do so about what it is that some folks go through because of who they are, because of social location, because of identity. In our journey towards love and compassion, it's forgiveness is an essential step. We are all imperfect and yet deserving of compassion. Forgiveness is actually the way that I frame it as a constant attitude and a process. It's not an occasional act. In this way, we can ask that Question, what story can I drop? What can I let go of? Compassion begins with mindfulness, letting ourselves recognize and be touched by discomfort, pain, suffering, our own and others. Sensing how deeply it is that our lives actually intertwine. 
bearing witness, and responding with heartfelt presence. So, this is a story about my grandfather. By far the most loving and compassionate person that I've known. He walked the talk. So one of my favorite things from my childhood was to hear my grandfather, who was a deacon at a church. And he would give what was called the report of the sick and the shut-ins. And he would start in the service, he would start, our brothers and sisters may be shut in, but they are not shut out of our hearts. And like the research study that I mentioned earlier, the program was the Good Samaritan. And it served those who were sick and aged and unable to come to services, who were living in care homes. Many were grieving or mourning. Some at this time had just come back from Vietnam. And my grandfather and others attended to these folks doing shopping and bringing food and cleaning homes, maintaining their yards and property, singing to them, praying for them, and talking with them. So they always remained a part of our community. Their names and photos were pasted on these little cards during the service that were passed around to the congregation. And out loud, people would offer these words of inspiration and compassion and love. And every hand in the church eventually would hold another hand and be physically connected to each other and to the photos until we were all connected in this symbolic harnessing of generosity, love, and compassion. So my grandfather always said that his role with the ministry was to know them clearly in mind and embrace them joyously by heart. And years after he died, I received his church notes that had my eight-year-old handwriting in them. So we would go to church with him. He would... uh, Uh, My brother and I, he would sit in between my brother and I, and he had this leather-bound journal that he would write questions in for us to answer or to basically to keep us out of trouble. That's really what it was. So one of us had asked a question, and the question is cut off and and, and faded, but you're able to make out on on the next page, the full page is his answer, And this is what he wrote. One day I will die. And I'll die having known a good life of service. And yet I could have loved more. I could have especially loved others more. I could have let this love express itself as care and concern for my neighbors, as care and concern for my friends and everybody that I come in touch with in person, over the phone, and in my letters to the prisoners. I would let this care and concern and generosity of heart permeate me, overcome me, overwhelm me, and then direct me. One day I'll die, and I'll die having known a good life of service. And yet I could have loved more. I could have loved others more. 
I could have let this love express itself as care and concern for my neighbors, my friends, and everybody I came in touch with in person, over the phone, and in my letters to the prisoners. I would let this care and concern and generosity of heart permeate me, overcome me, overwhelm me, and then direct me. I'm pretty sure I heard the Metasutta before I heard the Metasutta. <laughs> Love in action and fierce compassion are the practice of the Dhamma, the extraordinary found in the ordinary, the poignant reminders that life's fragility is not a mistake. If we touch that, we can come to understand the truth of the Dhamma in here and out there. Let's sit for a few moments. If God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, nor any act that I would not bow to.
Thank you for your kind attention. It's time to digest the Dhamma meal, and then you can uh, walking meditation. We'll be back at nine for chanting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.